This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of The Law School Show. I'm your host, Kelly Humber, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Heather Newfield, an immigration and refugee lawyer, who has also actually just finished litigating a very significant case that is currently before the Federal Court of Appeal about the rights of refugee claimants under the Canada-U.S. Safe Third Country Agreement, which we'll get into a bit more detail about that. Uh, But how are you doing today, Heather? Fine, thank you. Thanks very much for having me, Kelly. Thanks. I'm glad that you could make uh, the time for this. Um, So today's topic uh, is primarily about the Canada-U.S. Safe Third Country Agreement. Um, And maybe just that we could get started. Could you kind of explain real high level briefly what even it is? So the U.S.-Canada Safe Third Country Agreement is an agreement that has been in um, practice since I think about 2004 between the two countries on the premise that the US and Canada are burden sharing as they put it in regard to refugees. So the idea is that if someone comes to the US or Canada seeking asylum, the presumption is that they are supposed to seek asylum in the first of those countries that they reach. So if someone arrives in the US first, They're expected to seek asylum in the U.S. And if they try to come to Canada, they will be told that they need to go back to the U.S. and make their claim there. So I would just point out that this agreement only applies at ports of entry along the U.S.-Canada border and doesn't apply actually to people who enter Canada irregularly, meaning people who walk into Canada between ports of entry. So that's one of the things that's particularly odd about the agreement. If you manage to walk into the country between ports of entry, you will get a Canadian asylum claim. But if you come to one of our ports of entry and you tell our border officials, I'm here, I'd like to seek asylum, they will tell you, unless you meet a very narrow exception, that you are going to be handed back over to US authorities and required to make your claim there. Great, that was a good summary. And I guess kind of the incident that that would maybe um, spark a memory of in some people's mind is kind of summer of 2016 or 2017 when um, there was a lot more coverage in the media of um, migrants coming through Roxanne Road in Quebec. Um, so I guess my next question is um, like part of the purpose of the Safe Third Country Agreement is to protect against refoulement of refugees. And I was wondering if you could explain what the principle of non-refoulement is and how the Safe Third Country Agreement is meant in theory to protect against this. The principle of non-refoulement is a principle that comes from the Refugee Convention that essentially says that you cannot send refugees back to face persecution or torture in the country that they've fled and that it's a violation of international law to do so. Now, the issue is that when you have two countries that are essentially, quote unquote, burden sharing, I don't even like that term, of refugees, the idea is that both countries have to have strong adherence to those non-refoulement principles. Otherwise, you could have someone who is forced to make their refugee claim in one of those two countries who receives lesser protection 
from return to danger than someone who manages to make their claim in the other country. I guess this is uh, also similar to, I know in the EU, they have like a burden sharing kind of system like this. Countries that have different ideas of how their asylum process should work and what level of safeguards people should have. And one of the, what was meant to be a safeguard in our safe third country agreement is that once the US was designated as a safe third country, then there is supposed to be an ongoing, not a once in a while, but an ongoing sort of all the time review of whether the US continues to comply with the refugee convention, the torture convention, and key human rights principles. And only if the US continues to meet those standards can we continue to send people back to that country as a reliable and equal partner in refugee protection. Okay, interesting. So there is built into the agreement, you know, in theory, these safeguards and kind of something that should trigger an end to the agreement. Um, is that part of what's come up in the uh, challenge that your team makes to the Safe Third Country Agreement? Absolutely, because there is no indication that this ongoing review was actually reaching the minister and uh, cabinet essentially to give them the opportunity to consider whether to de-designate the U.S. as a safe third country. So I think, you know, we'll get into this at some point probably, but when we challenged the safe third country agreement, we were challenging it both on charter grounds and on more administrative law grounds. So what I'm talking here is the more sort of administrative law side that Yes, you have a review process in theory on paper, but if those reviews aren't happening in a way that in practice, the information is reaching cabinet in a way that they can decide whether to take that decision to de-designate the U.S., then that review is really illusory. Okay, yeah, maybe we could uh, then actually you know, shift gears a little bit and get into what exactly is the constitutional challenge um, that your team is bringing against the STCA. I understand it's a section seven, which is the life, liberty and security of person, great guarantees. And could you kind of explain how, um, you know, section seven rights are being argued here and what's at play? Absolutely. So in our challenge, we had three individual families who were individual litigants whose charter rights were at play. But then we were also combining them with three public interest parties, meaning three nonprofit organizations that brought the challenge together with the individual litigants who essentially represented the interests of refugees writ large, all the people who had no voice in this litigation, who had perhaps already been pushed back into the U.S., perhaps detained and, and possibly deported. So what we were looking at was Canada's involvement in receiving people at our ports of entry and deciding that those people had to be sent back under the Safe Third Country Agreement without any review of the individual circumstances of individuals and any review of whether they faced risk in the US asylum system or had access to a fair procedure there meant that Canada was essentially, you could say, complicit in sending those people back 
because this is an agreement where Canada is essentially offloading its responsibilities toward refugees to the U.S. So what we looked at was whether Canada handing those people directly back over to U.S. Customs and Border Protection uh, put people in a situation where their Section 7 rights to liberty and security of the person were infringed. And I mentioned liberty and security of the person because we didn't have the ability to prove risk to life because it's very difficult to prove a chain of causation to show that handing someone back to the US actually is going to result directly in their life being imperiled, even though we may know that in terms of the risk of deportation. So we were focusing more on detention, the risk of detention, and the ways in which detention also in horrible conditions and in conditions where people were not able to fully make out their asylum claims because of lack of representation, because of inability to gather documents from detention, things like that put their security of the person at risk. Okay, great, thanks. That's a really good overview. Um, the topic of detention, uh, I'll put a little pin in that because I do want to ask you some more questions about it further on. But maybe like just to add a little bit more to the, you know, our context of this case, could you explain briefly um, the journey of this challenge? Um, just some of the legal history. I know something significant happened in July 2020. And then of course, February 23rd and February 24th, 2021 are, you know, the two most recent things. And maybe you could paint the picture there a little bit. Absolutely. This is a case that nine of us on the council team have worked on since 2017. So it's been a very long journey. And I would point out that before we brought this challenge, the public interest organizations involved, Canadian Council for Refugees, Amnesty International, um, Canadian Council of Churches, the, two of them, Canadian Council for Refugees and Amnesty got together and we did a huge research-based report on the situation for people being turned back into the U.S. asylum system and all of the risks and barriers that they were facing in gaining protection. And we put that to the immigration minister in the early summer of 2017 and did a real push to try to convince the government to de-designate the U.S. as a safe third country. That was not successful. And it was after that that we launched our constitutional challenge. But to launch our challenge, we really needed individual applicants. A similar challenge had been brought back more than 10 years ago. Um, in 2008, it was decided, I believe, and the federal court had found back then that the U.S. was not a safe third country that or more specifically that there were charter violations. I mean, the court didn't specifically say the U.S. isn't safe, but it did find charter violations. However, the federal court of appeal at the time overturned that decision on rather technical grounds, but partly because they said, you know, these charter arguments are hypothetical because you don't have individuals uh, involved, whose individual rights are at play here. You, you don't have individuals who've come to the border. And that was partly because people were too afraid to come to the border and try to be part of a challenge. So in this case, in 2017, we had individual families who we identified who became part of our challenge. 
and who were pushed back at the border in two case, uh, in, in one case. And in two cases, there was a lot of legal work done at the moment that they were at the border and they were allowed to enter Canada with a temporary type of status, but only because uh, we had gone to the federal court to stop their their deportation back to the U.S. from the border. So we ended up with these three families that we joined with our public interest parties. And then the next stage was that the Department of Justice tried to bump off the public interest parties and tried to say that we don't have standing to bring the challenge, that we don't have the right to be part of this. It needs to be just the individuals. So we were successful in fighting that. And then the the case proceeded in federal court. And eventually uh, we had five days of hearing in the federal court in November of 2019. And as Kelly mentioned, we got a positive decision from the federal court in July of 2020, finding that yes, section seven rights were violated and that this uh, agreement is unconstitutional. And after that, the Department of Justice, of course, appealed because they didn't like that decision. Uh, They didn't want an end to the agreement. And we ended up in the Federal Court of Appeal for two days this week. And now we're waiting for a decision. So that's a a real sort of summary view that doesn't really include what we had to do at at a practical on the ground level to actually build this case, but is more sort of the legal history. Excellent, thanks. That was uh, definitely a really good overview. Um, And I guess maybe just the next potential stage of this case is that this is potentially a case for people to watch if it goes to the Supreme Court. Um, There's a real possibility of that, I understand. I think there is a real possibility of that because if we are unsuccessful on appeal, we will certainly try to go to the Supreme Court. It's clear that Department of Justice would too. And what really remains to be seen is whether the Supreme Court grants leave to hear the case, because when I say grants leave, the Supreme Court is not required to hear every case uh, that potentially reaches them. They will decide whether they think it's a case that they should hear. Very true. Um, So now I want to discuss some of the specific arguments um, of your case against the Safe Third Country Agreement. Um, I understand two big parts of this case are about refugees being detained at the border in the U.S. and gender-based violence and gang-related refugee claims being rejected in the U.S. Um, where they aren't in Canada. I don't know if my you know, summary of that is necessarily uh, as good as yours would be or if you think it reflects the most important parts of um, your argument, but maybe you could kind of discuss that. Absolutely. No, I think it it does in the sense that what you're getting at is that where the federal court judge found that Section 7 was violated was in regard to what was happening to people in detention. And the other issue about gender-based violence is really the issue that we argued that there was discrimination under Section 15 of of the charter in terms of when you send women back to have to make out a gender-based claim in the U.S. system that they were going to be significantly disadvantaged compared to if they were able to make out their claim in the Canadian system. So 
detention was a very large part of things. And, and what was interesting about that was it wasn't going to be enough to just bring forward reports from human rights organizations about detention. We had to show that people handed back over to U.S. authorities were then actually put right into detention and what those conditions were like and the fact that they didn't have any kind of fair recourse to get out of detention. And I would note here that in Canada, if someone's detained for immigration reasons, they have a review of that detention at 48 hours, seven days, and one month, and then every month thereafter. There is no time-based detention review scheme in the U.S. So people can try to have their detention reviewed, but it's extremely difficult. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of places in the country where authorities just really don't care about reviewing people's detention. So what we had to do was gather evidence from U.S. experts working in detention, and we had to gather evidence from lawyers working along the border with detainees, the people who were actually in the jails and, and immigration detention centers who were able to tell us what was happening on the ground and say, yes, we have actually seen people who were returned under Safe Third, and this is what has happened to them. And then we managed with great effort to track down through all these lawyers about 10 individual detainees who our team, a few of our team members actually went into immigration detention centers in the US and took affidavits from these detainees as concrete evidence of what was happening to people. So I don't know if that's actually um, a, a response to what your question was, but I think it's important when we think about the detention issue to think about not only what are the arguments we are making, but how do you actually substantiate what you're trying to argue? Because if you don't have the evidence that this is happening to real people systematically, then uh, you're not going to convince a judge just from, say, a few human rights reports. Yeah, and I guess uh, one of the challenges there that um, I think you're narrowing in on is um, evidence of something systematic. And I was wondering if you could kind of speak to some of the challenges, you've a little bit already, but some of the challenges of this evidence gathering, you know, right up until the time when you have to do the final submission of evidence, um, building, you know, that very big a huge record. Case. Yeah. yeah. And just like the high threshold um, for what really is going to seem systematic or, you know, how many more people do you have to show? Yeah. And I would note that, you know, the way charter rights work, a violation of one person's charter rights is a violation uh, under the charter. However, I think at a practical level, you really need to show that something is, is happening a lot and isn't just about one or two people, even though that could be sufficient under a legal test. Part of it is what you're able to accomplish in the mind of a judge of convincing them that this is really serious and this isn't just a system that has some issues where things are not administered correctly once in a while, but that this is really a system stacked against refugee claimants. And so when we started out, we knew that we needed evidence from individuals and we needed expert evidence from U.S. asylum law experts. And when you start, you think, 
how on earth are we going to gather this stuff? And so it started with just a lot of networking and putting out queries on immigration listservs and contacting well-known U.S. organizations. And, you know, this person knows this person who knows this lawyer who works in a detention center who has maybe seen, say, third returnees. So we're trying to track down all these different lawyers to get their testimonies. We're trying to convince the U.S.'s top asylum experts that they want to give high-level expert evidence pro bono because we don't have any money to actually pay them. We ended up with about nine or 10 of the U.S.'s foremost asylum experts in different aspects of asylum law who agreed to dedicate their time for free to do huge detailed written declarations. And then in this kind of case, the way it works is nobody shows up as a witness in court and testifies in person. It's all done in written form or not really written, but transcribed where you have your expert witnesses come and be cross-examined by the other side. And everything that's said in that cross-examination is transcribed by a, a sort of a court reporter type person. And then those written transcripts go into the court record. So it meant that logistically, our U.S. asylum experts, a lot of them even had to fly to Toronto to be cross-examined by the Department of Justice lawyers. Um, and then we had the issue that tracking down individual immigration detainees who could testify about their situation uh, via affidavit, and that that was done through a lot of the lawyers working at the detention centers. And the problem with that was that... Um, Department of Justice essentially wanted to cross-examine them, but most of them were in U.S. immigration detention. So the way they did that was they provided us written questions that we then had to get answers from those detainees. And in some cases, the person had you know, already been deported or had been released, and we couldn't find them at the time of those written questions. So then the Department of Justice would try to argue that their evidence had less weight because they weren't able to essentially cross-examine that detainee. So logistically, a case like this is extremely complicated. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of uh, procedural challenges that I never would have even considered in just such a big case like this. And uh, so I did actually watch, um, you know, the proceedings on February 23rd and 24th. Um, and I sensed that while watching the proceedings that there was this idea floating around um, that the issues with the safe third country agreement was really just that former president Trump, you know, was president at the time. And that now that president Biden is in office, um, those problems will just go away. Um, and I was wondering what you think about this argument. So I think this is an incredibly inaccurate argument and assumption and in a sense, it felt like an argument that the Department of Justice lawyers were asking the judges to almost take judicial notice, meaning sort of accept as just sort of a generally accepted fact that we've got a new administration, so maybe things will be different. Um, and if the government, the Canadian government, had a lot of evidence that things were so much better now, then our argument was they should have brought an, a special motion or application to the court to say, let us admit some fresh evidence. They didn't do that. They didn't refer to any actual 
evidence. And in a sense, it was because they couldn't because the time for submitting evidence was closed. But you have to keep in mind that a lot of the issues in the U.S. asylum system that we raised went all the way back to the 1990s. These aren't just Trump. These aren't even just Obama. Some of these things go back before Obama. The detention of asylum seekers is hugely longstanding. The one-year bar, meaning uh, the rule that if you don't make your asylum claim within your first year in the U.S., you generally can't make it unless you meet, meet certain exceptions. Um, issues in terms of how gender-based claims are treated. So many things go back more than 20 years. And so it's a real fallacy to think that just because Trump's gone, everything's great. And even if things do improve over Biden, uh, under Biden, there would have to be changes in the law and policy and the culture of the agencies that carry out these government orders for the situation to really be safe and fair for asylum seekers in the U.S. Thanks. That's a really excellent point. And I guess it kind of really made me reflect on some of the challenges that lawyers face in the courtroom trying to rebut these like narratives within culture and within media about, you know, the way that the world is and kind of, I don't know, the challenges of combating a narrative. That's such a good point because we were having discussions, you know, amongst our team thinking, we know this is going to come up. How do we deal with this? Because we, as the lawyers on the case, are not allowed to testify. We can't just say to the judges, hey, guys, look, um, actually, things haven't changed under Biden. And here's all the reasons. Because we're not witnesses. We can't testify. And we can't bring forward new evidence now because what this case is supposed to be and I think that sometimes some participants forgot this, is that it's simply an appeal where you review, did the federal court judge make legal errors when she decided the case? Not let's litigate the case all over again and have to reprove everything. So it's difficult because we can't bring in any more evidence. Yeah, that sounds like a... Definitely a major challenge. I guess just kind of to finish off my uh, discussion of evidence here too, um, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about the gender-based violence aspect of your case and if you could kind of give a little bit more in detail about why this gender-based violence discrepancy, I guess you could say, between how Canada handles cases like this and how the United States handles cases of gender-based violence um, and like why that's so significant for the type of refugees that are increasingly appearing at the U.S. southern border. Certainly. So when someone is arguing a refugee claim under international refugee law, one of the bases on which someone can gain refugee status is membership in a particular social group. And women can constitute a particular social group if someone is at risk because of being a woman. And women who have suffered domestic violence can be a particular social group. So you can narrow it, you know, women domestic violence survivors, young women in a particular country, um, old women in a particular country. And in Canada, it's simply been accepted since, I would say, 
even the early 90s, that women constitute a particular social group and can gain protection because of gender-based harms. We also have gender guidelines that our decision makers are supposed to follow. Now, if you move to the US, there is not this recognition that women automatically satisfy the particular social group test. There are some judges who accept that, but many, many, many who do not. And it's not enough to prove that you have that characteristic of, of being a woman. You also have to prove all these additional elements to prove your social group in the US system that don't exist in the Canadian system or really at international law, which is that you've got to show that your group is seen as a group by the society you come from. So if you're a survivor of domestic violence, you've got to prove that domestic violence survivors are seen as a distinctive group in your home society. You've got to bring forward usually expert evidence, statistics, reports, it's this bar that almost no one can meet. And most social groups you try to argue, a judge will either say is, are too broad or are too narrow. Now, you add to that, that in 2018, there was a case that was, as our gender persecution expert, Karen Musalo said, one of the worst domestic violence cases she'd ever seen in her probably 30 years of work in this field. And the woman was denied protection because after her case was at the appeal stage, the attorney general of the US, so essentially you know, the, the head law guy in the country, takes the case and refers it to himself to re-decide, which is this weird US power that the attorney general has. And he decided to proclaim in a decision that's binding on decision makers nationwide that women fleeing domestic violence and people fleeing gang violence generally will not qualify for asylum. And this is a case called Matter of AB. And so this case since then has been used to widely deny asylum for women fleeing gender-based violence based on the fact that the attorney general has said so. So it means that if we have a woman fleeing gender-based violence who comes to our border and our officers have no discretion to consider her situation and whether she can actually get a fair consideration of her refugee claim in the US, they are simply turning her back over to a system where she may have little to no chance of being granted refugee status, despite the fact of being at risk of persecution and even death. And I would just add that, you know, in the Federal Court of Appeal, as in the Federal Court, the Department of Justice kept saying, well, look, there are women who are getting refugee protection in the U.S. And we said, yeah, but that's kind of not the point, because just because you say some people aren't being tortured, that doesn't mean that we discount the, the fact that other people are. I mean, that's not that's not a valid argument to say that because some women are still succeeding, it doesn't really matter what's happening to other women. And they also tried to put it to the judges that what we're doing is we're essentially trying to put the U.S. asylum system on trial. We're trying to force Canadian judges to judge the acceptability of the U.S. asylum system. And what we kept trying to explain is what's at issue here is Canada's action in knowingly turning these people back with no risk assessment to put them into that system. And so you have Canadian action here that 
absolutely can be reviewed under our charter. And I guess that also really speaks to kind of what you were talking about before, as far as this tension that's playing out in this case between the individual rights violations that you've shown and then also this evaluation of the system and how both of those are at play in this case. Um, my next question um, is kind of more about how a Section 7 case is historically interpreted in the refugee context specifically. Um, so I was wondering if you can explain how the court usually interprets Section 7 rights in relation to refugees and how did you know, the July ruling by the federal court potentially depart from this? Well, I would say that usually courts are reticent to make rulings on Section 7 rights for people, say, who are partway through the refugee process in Canada. And for example, if someone is denied an appeal because they fall into a category of people who don't get an appeal of their refugee decision, you know, the court will say, look, Section 7 is looking at your, your life and your security of the person and things like that. And there are safeguards once you get to the end of the line to consider the risk that you face before you're deported. And so that's the time to consider your Section 7 rights, not midway through the process. And so we really had to show that in this case, this is the start and the end of the refugee process for these people at our border. There is no later time for them where their Section 7 rights could be looked at before they're deported from Canada because they are deported that same day normally. And in this case, you know, the Section 7 violation was found in regard specifically to what's happening to people with regard to detention and their security of the person in detention. So I think that since it's a somewhat narrow finding, I don't really see how it's going to be used to help in a lot of other contexts for rights of refugees who are already in Canada, because this was very fact specific about sending people to a detention system where there was very little possibility of getting out and where the conditions were really horrific, um, much more so than in Canada. Okay, great. That was a really good synopsis of it. The one other thing that I would highlight is that this case really shows how much you have to work in a team with a huge amount of collaboration. There were nine of us, and you might think, why does a case need nine lawyers? And you needed everything from people tracking down individual safe third returnees on the ground in the U.S. to trying to work with the individual experts to review their affidavits, help them improve them, prepping people for cross-examination, trying to figure out the legal arguments, drafting uh, arguments that we're submitting. There's so many moving pieces. And so this really shows how critical group work is. And on top of that, I think one of the things I learned is that you have to be unbelievably organized. You have to have some person whose job it is, is to keep all these moving parts organized and coordinated because no matter how great your legal arguments are, and even if you're pretty good at evidence gathering, if you don't have somebody keeping track of all these pieces and everything nine people are doing, your litigation's not going to get off the ground. 
Wow, that really makes me um, think a little bit more about trying to build some organization skills while I'm still new in law school. And that was also a really great segue to me asking you some questions about your litigation team. Um, I guess to start off, what does your litigation team look like? I know there's nine lawyers, but who's kind of in the pack there? So we were a combination of legal clinic lawyers. So people who work for legal clinics that assist low-income immigrants and refugees and are funded through Legal Aid Ontario and private bar lawyers, meaning lawyers who work for themselves. Um, And two of us as well are lawyers who have U.S. immigration law experience as well, which was also really helpful in terms of understanding the U.S. laws and, and working with the U.S. experts as well. So you really, it was sort of a a mixture of skills and a mixture of younger lawyers and lawyers who were very experienced litigators who had spent a lot of time litigating in the federal court and the federal court of appeal over the years. And two of our counsel were actually counsel the first time around on the first challenge to the safe third country agreement back in 2007, 2008. So they were also able to think creatively about what were the ways that this challenge needed to be done differently. Yeah. And I guess also, you know, a lot of what this case was, it sounded like, was responding to the federal court, the federal court's issues with your constitutional challenge in the first one that you're trying to address very much in this one. I guess it leads me to my next question is, what is it like litigating this case over the course of an evolving pandemic Um, I'm interested in what some of the challenges were, because I'm sure there was many, but also just how it like changes the litigation experience. Interesting question. You know, we were really lucky that the pandemic was not at play yet when we had to do our evidence gathering. We wouldn't have been able to go into detention centers and gather testimony from clients that are claimants in those centers. We also wouldn't have had the ability to find so many U.S. lawyers who were working directly with people in detention centers if the pandemic had been on. So we were past the evidence gathering phase. And essentially, we had made our federal court arguments, too. We had had our five days in federal court in person at the end of 2019. But what definitely did change was that the federal court of appeal hearing that we just had was completely over zoom. So it meant that the people who were arguing had to sit there looking at the judges over zoom, but then also trying to look at their own notes. Plus one of the things that we all talked about was the fact that normally you're all sitting there in court you got one person standing at the podium making their arguments, but the rest of you are sitting there at a table. You're passing notes to each other, scribbling things down. And if your colleague who's at the podium is scrambling for a citation that they don't know, somebody just passes the sticky note to them. Here, we had moments on Zoom where the counsel who was arguing had to say to the judge, look, one of my colleagues is really the expert on this detailed evidence. Um, They'll find it, but I have to wait for an email to come through from them with the citation and I'll have to come back to you on that. And there were a few points where I felt like the judges were maybe a bit frustrated that we didn't have it right in front of us at that moment. Um, And simultaneously for communication, we had a WhatsApp chat going between all the council 
because we were in different cities. We couldn't be together. And so that was how we were communicating. So if you can imagine as a litigator, you're having to process all these channels of communication, looking at the judges, reading your notes, reading the WhatsApp chat, all at the same time while you're trying to take incredibly complicated questions from the judges. So it's just a complete information overload in a way that's very different from a normal court scenario. Yeah, it sounds like a very significant departure from the usual uh, litigation experience. Was there anything that you guys were able to, strategies or, you know, ways of communicating that you felt like you kind of developed over the course of the case that would maybe be a useful takeaway for other people to know about? I think one thing that really helped us was that we were organized in the fact that we had reliable litigation team meetings. We knew essentially over a period of years that almost every Friday at one o'clock or two o'clock, we were going to have a team meeting. And that's when we were going to talk about what we've been doing, what needed to be done next, all of the planning. And so you had this ongoing accountability that you had to do things for these meetings and that we kept in communication because some of us were in Ottawa and some of us were in Toronto. So I think that was really important. And even just having a, you know, a group email where we'd be emailing each other all together on different things so that everybody knew what everybody else was working on and not just having channels of communication, maybe being between say two or three people. So I think that that kind of organized group communication is really important in any litigation team over time. And I would just add that the other part that was great is that it was just a really fun group of people. And so I would say the other key part of this is if you're working with people for four years, you really need to have a a sort of a group sense of humor in a sense and the ability to laugh at your frustrations and maybe the crazy things that the other side is doing and really just be able to have some fun together because it's pretty intense work. Those are, yeah, those sound like great takeaways. Um, And I really love the one about having a good team where you can laugh together. Uh, That seems like truly the golden ticket here. My final topic uh, that I wanted to ask you about um, is I know that um, you've recently become a sole practitioner Uh, And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and why you decided to open up your own practice. Well, I have to say, when I decided to open up my own practice, it was not in my head that I was going to be launching in the middle of a pandemic. And as a lot of my senior colleagues have said to me, you couldn't have picked a worse time to try to switch to private practice than the middle of a pandemic. Um, I had spent around 10 years at a community legal clinic practicing immigration and refugee law. And I decided that I wanted to expand the scope of practice that I was doing because when you're at a clinic, you're doing a lot of cases where people are low income and need certain types of applications done that maybe they can't get done on a legal aid certificate where legal aid gives them a certain amount of hours with a private lawyer. So we were repeatedly doing certain types of cases like humanitarian applications um, many, many times. And I wanted something a bit new and different now. And I wanted to expand a bit into economic immigration as well. I wanted to get into more litigation because I really love litigation. 
So I decided to go out on my own, but planned this before the pandemic hit. And uh, then ended up opening my office in September. And what actually surprised me was that, you know, just because there's a pandemic and just because the borders are essentially closed, you've still got people who need different types of immigration assistance. And there, they may be people who are already here. They may be people who are partway through a refugee case and have realized that they've ended up with a really bad lawyer and they need to switch or they are um, here in Canada and they've studied here and they're hoping to stay based on their education and skills. So fortunately for me, there has still been work during the pandemic. But what I found is that uh, you know, we have to think very differently about how we operate because you're not having clients just coming in and sitting down in your office. It's a switch to telephone and video calls and to trying to go as paperless as possible in your office. So I guess actually in some ways, uh, it almost was a very opportune time for you to uh, expand your practice, especially with um, to kind of broaden into more immigration as well, because it turns out that uh, a border closure for you know most of a year actually really does uh, create a lot of immigration challenges. Well, yeah, there's that, and I think also the fact that I opened this office with the thought that okay, my clients can be anywhere in the country because all of a sudden everybody's gotten used to Zoom meetings. So this idea that I can only have a lawyer in my city who I go down and sit in their office has really changed. So it expands what people will accept in the way they receive legal services. It also means that unlike, say, some longer standing colleagues who were still working very heavily with paper files and photocopying and printing everything, I was able to go right to scanning everything, putting together federal court records as PDF documents being submitted online rather than, you know, volumes of paper that you would deliver to the court in the past. So instead of having to change the way I did everything in my practice to adjust to new technology, which has been really hard for a lot of people, I was just able to do it the new way from the start. Yeah, the technological uh, differences are definitely a very good point. Um, I'm wondering how much of these, you know, changes in how people expect to receive legal services and how business is kind of done now, um, how much do you expect that that will continue into this maybe still far off post-pandemic world? I think a lot of it will. I think if, for example, if someone's recommending a lawyer to you because say it's a trusted friend of yours who says, look, I know this lawyer is really good for this reason, but they're in a different city. I think you're going to be willing to interact with that lawyer remotely because what a lot of people care most about is knowing that it's a really good referral rather than just picking some random lawyer that they can go see in person. I think where we really struggle is with clients who are in the refugee process, who've experienced really severe trauma and for example, I have one client with really severe post-traumatic stress disorder and not being able to sit down with him and even just bring him a glass of water or hand him some Kleenex is really difficult because I know that he's sitting there on WhatsApp and, 
as soon as that call ends, he's simply alone in his apartment and super distressed. And so I'm not even able to ensure that this person is at a point where I feel that it's safe for them to leave my office and go out into the rest of their day because I don't have that personal interaction with them. So I think on the immigration side where it's less emotional, the uh, remote work is, is fine and can continue just fine. But I think for working with refugee claimants, we really need to be able to sit in the same room as people. That also brings up some of the challenges with ensuring things like confidentiality and you know, safety of the setting um, when it is remote and it's not your office where the walls are, you know, the protected space. Have you kind of run into any other um, of those technological challenges? I have not had a lot of issues with it, but there's been a lot of discussion and there's been even you know, presentations for lawyers, issues around, for example, if you have a client who's in a domestic violence situation and the only way they can talk to you is, is over WhatsApp or phone, but their home is not a safe space for them, then how do you conduct those interviews? Things like that are hugely problematic. Um, I definitely do have the situation where I'll have clients where there's just total chaos in the background because they've got three little kids running around who are home from school. Um, and so you're dealing with those kinds of, of challenges and how the client can focus in that situation. Now, in the past, there were a lot of times that I had little kids running around my physical office. So that's not so much of a change, but I usually had a big box of toys. And at least since they were toys that were different from the ones they had at home, kind of entertained them for a bit. Um, but, you know, it's hard to know how focused your client is when you're not able to be in the room with them. And what's really been a struggle for some of my colleagues is having clients who are homeless or who have mental health issues and don't have access to technology, then how do you possibly work with those clients right now? Yeah, that sounds like definitely it's had diverse impacts, both positive in some light and also very challenging and exponentially more negative for others. Uh, you also mentioned that you still have a child um, running around your home office. Yeah, I, um, well, as I told Kelly earlier, I, since I was working from home today, I came to my basement to record this because, you know, two-year-olds are unpredictable creatures and you never know when she might burst in. But uh, I mean, I have had really weird uh, moments with clients like the other day where there was an issue with Joanna and I suddenly had to say to my client because I was working from home that day as a lot of us have um, under COVID at, at different times I had to say look I'm really sorry but I've got this urgent situation with this two-year-old and I'm gonna have to call you back in five minutes so these things can be difficult, but I think in some crazy ways, it also humanizes you to the client as well. And there've definitely been clients that I think I have connected with more lately over the fact that we are both trying to parent during COVID in really challenging times. And I've had clients with little ones running around in the background on Zoom, and I've been able to say, oh yeah, I've got one the same age. I totally understand what you're dealing with. Don't worry. I don't mind that your child is in the background on Zoom. So I would say it's a mixture. 
Yeah, that really does sound like quite the mixed bag. Uh, thanks so much for sharing your insights and especially your personal experience there. Uh, my final question, just for us to wrap up, is um, I'm wondering what your feelings right now are about the potential result of the Safe Third Country Agreement case. In terms of the case, I'm definitely concerned about the sense that I got uh, from some of the questions from the judges. I would not be surprised if we're not successful at the Federal Court of Appeal. And so in that case, I really, really hope that we're able to have success at the Supreme Court. And I think that in a case like this, the court really needs to remember that this is individual people and their, their lives being put at risk and that Canada essentially can't offload its responsibilities to refugees to a so-called partner that does not guarantee protection of their rights and does not act in compliance with the refugee convention and other human rights principles. I mean, let's remember that this is a country that had no issue with putting children essentially in cages and ripping them out of their parents' arms. Now, even though that's not something that is happening to say third returnees along the Northern border, how can we possibly say that a country doing that is a country that we in, in all good faith can be sending refugees back to? So, you know, I, I, I really don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> and I don't know if that's an answer to your question either. No, that was a great answer. Um, I, yeah, I just want to thank you again so much. Uh, for joining me today uh, for this lovely interview. I definitely learned a lot more about the Safe Third Country Agreement that at this point I even thought I could. Uh, and it's definitely going to continue to be very interesting to watch how it progresses. So thanks so much. Well, thank you, Kelly. I mean, I think it's really exciting for law students to get to watch this develop. But also, I think that as law students, we never got enough of an opportunity to understand what goes into litigation. You read all these final decisions in cases, and maybe if you're lucky, you get to read a factum or two, the arguments that were written, but we never get to go back behind the scenes and say, how did we get there? And what was done to be able to, to build these arguments? So I always love getting to talk about that in regard to this case. Well, thanks. I really enjoyed hearing all that you have to say about this case. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time on The Law School Show.